Hey everyone, this is Chad. I'm really thankful you're listening to this sermon, a sermon that I did not preach. It seems that the topic of God's wrath is one many wonder about, and I'm thankful that Matt, our teaching ministry leader, was willing to cover it. For many, the anger of God is one of the biggest challenges and or hangups of faith. People can't grasp why God seems so angry at points in the Bible, why God would be mad at them, or maybe most, why God would send people to hell. Answering these difficult questions is at the heart of this series. Because of its importance, we would really appreciate if you would consider sharing these sermons if you find them to be helpful or valuable. If you would post these sermons on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else, it could be life-changing. Many people need to hear what Matt says in this series, and your sharing could be the way that that happens. Also, if you're listening to this on a podcast host, would you consider leaving a review? This helps our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that's really important. Thanks again for listening. I hope Matt's sermon will help you learn and live more fully for Jesus. You know, I have a lot of material here. In fact, if you've ever read one of those Choose Your Own Ending books, that's kind of how I wrote my sermon. If I say this, turn to page three. If not, go to page two. Um, Because there's a lot here. And I'm just going to assume it's going to come out right. Um, But let me tell you a story before I jump into it, um, because it relates to this subject. Um, When I first started working at Costco, uh, they start you out as seasonal employees. They basically say, hey, if you work really hard and do really well, we'll give you the opportunity to stay on. And so that motivates you to want to work really hard and really well. And so I would run everywhere. I would always be smiling. I would work really hard. And I remember there was a guy, let's call him Eric. That's his real name. I don't know why I just said that. (laughs) Whatever, Eric. Uh, We'll call him Eric because that's his name, but you won't know who he is, so it doesn't matter. And (laughs) he pulled me aside and he said, he, he was an employee there and he said, hey, I just want you to know, you can't please everyone. And I looked at him and I smiled and I said, I know, but I'm going to try. And I kept trying. They would say, hey, do you want to push carts for four hours? No, but that's not what I'd say. I said, I'll do whatever you need me to do. Are you kidding me? Is that what you need? I'll do it. And over time doing this, the way that Eric treated me, I could tell he was always glaring at me, and he was always just looking at me like, frankly, he hated me. And I realized that his words, you can't please everyone, were really, you can't please me. And no matter what he would say to me, always very passive-aggressive, I would pretend like I didn't hear it. That's not, you know, really what he meant. And I would treat him kindly. A lot of it was because, hey, I don't, I don't want to get into it with anybody. 
I'm, I'm on this probational period. All I want to do is get in. So I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to be nice. I'm not going to treat cruelty with cruelty. And over time, doing this over and over and over again, uh, he and I were in the break room. And he came and uh, sat next to me. And I remember him breathing out really heavily. He just went, can I talk to you? I said, of course, man. I was, I was half expecting him to say, I just hate you and I don't know why, right, kind of thing. And he said, I kind of just want to apologize because I don't know if you noticed, but I haven't been very nice to you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you seem fine to me, <laughs> right? And he said, I just realized that maybe I just thought you were making other people look bad. And I realized that it's not that you were working extra hard, but maybe I should be working harder. And he apologized, and it was genuine, and it was real. And because I repaid good with good, good things happened. Despite every inclination in me wanting to be mean back and wanting to be cruel back, Good things happened because I repaid evil with good. And we're going to get into that, but let me do a quick recap of what we talked about last, last week and the week before. So the week before, uh, I talked about how anger is not necessarily incompatible with God's love. In fact, in many ways, it's an expression of it. And the last week, I talked about how uh, God's wrath, specifically uh, in the Old Testament, was used to help us remember the details of His commandments. And it's funny because last week, on the way to church, uh, we're kind of trying to teach Rogan, my son, he's three years old, to be able to just sing and make up songs. And so I would sing and make up songs for him, and he'd say, sing about this, Daddy, and he would give me topics. And of course, uh, Ashley, my wife, would try and not do very well, but she would try nonetheless. Um, uh, she's kind of getting out of her comfort zone to do that because we want to encourage him to just be creative and fun. And so this was his song. I love mommy. Mommy loves me. She never lets me do anything. I try to do something. She says no. She never lets me do anything. I always want to do. She says no, no, no. She never lets me do anything. And I thought, wow, it's true. All we remember is the negative. <laughs> right? He started out with, I know she loves me, but oh, man, all this stuff she never lets me do. And that was his song. And, and the, the negative things in our lives help us really remember in detail uh, some really important stuff, namely what not to do. And that's how God really used wrath, uh, specifically in the Old Testament. And that's kind of the psychology behind the anger. It kind of, I've kind of been talking about the reasons why God might be angry, and we can kind of understand it. And I want to talk now about the reality of it and what it looks like really, because the doctrine of God's wrath has fallen in many ways on hard times, and God's character is on trial, and we've set ourselves up as judges. 
we wonder, how can hell be justified? How could God destroy these people? Why is God so angry? And now more than ever, we really need a proper understanding of what God's wrath is. But it's a hard subject. It's a really hard subject. In fact, I've been pulling my hair out this week just thinking about it. Because in seminary, when I'm taking courses on theology, even my professors tiptoe around this reality. So it's hard to talk about God's final judgment. It's hard to talk about a hell that is actually occupied. And in many ways, it's hard because we're trying to square everything we know about the Bible, the biblical principles of love, with the reality of a God of wrath and a God who gets angry. And it's because only God can balance the two in perfect harmony, where there can be wrath and where there can be love. Only God can do vengeance and only God can do wrath. And that's where we're going to get into the verse, and you'll see a little bit of why I shared that first story. Romans 12, 19 through 21 says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And since God is going to take up your cause and see that justice is, is done, you can lay it down. You don't have to carry anger and bitterness and resentment and revenge. In fact, Jesus warned that an unforgiving heart will destroy you in the end. He says that in Matthew 6.15 and also later in Matthew 18.35. So Paul says here in Romans 12 verse 19, leave it to the wrath of God. It's, and then the wrath of God is defined further as God's vengeance. He says, I will avenge. He says, vengeance is mine in other translations. So wrath is connected with God's response to something that deserves vengeance. And then it says, I will repay. So God's wrath is treated as a repayment to man for something he has done. So just taking this verse alone with its pieces uh, this is one of the definitions that's used for wrath. It's God's settled anger towards sin expressed in the repayment of suitable vengeance on the guilty sinner. So wrath is God's settled anger against what you did, and He expresses it by repaying that with suitable vengeance. I remember in uh, elementary school, I was given an assignment. That, it, the assignment was apparently just a really poor assignment. I can't remember it, but I do know that my father was so angry about this assignment, it was apparently so ludicrous, so ridiculous, that he was going to personally pen a few-page letter to my elementary school teacher. And it was filled, I'm sure, with the Brodignagian vernacular and vituperative criticisms so typical of genius. So my dad did not spare any syllables, 
if I, I could read at the time, but I certainly couldn't read that letter. And it was long, 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 long and angry. And I was charged as this kid to go and give it to my teacher, right? And I go and I give it to my teacher with a smile and say, here you go. Little did I know she's going to, oh, you know, thank you. Oh, this is horrible. I feel horrible now. Uh, But in many ways, that's kind of how we should treat God's wrath. It's not ours to do. It's not ours. I just handed the letter off and kept being a kid, loving life, smiling, and getting lost in my own world. They would always say, earth to mat, earth to mat, because I was lost in my head. Still happens. Ask my wife. So we're not called to wrath or vengeance. It's God's. So in many ways, it's hard to talk about because it's not ours to do. It's ours to leave for the doing. And, and I can see why that would be because uh, I, when I watch shows with my wife, you know, first of all, there are always villains that, that we hate. Any movie or show I watch with my wife, she can tell you. I'm like, I can't wait till this person dies. <laughs> like, I want this person to die. She's like, why? I'm like, they're annoying. You, can you, I, they just don't need to be in here. Uh, I asked uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, and they uh, responded very quickly like Voldemort from Harry Potter because they're fanatics. Um, uh, or Saruman from the Lord of the Rings, who was the evil wizard who killed Gandalf the Grey or attempted to. You know, all of these, I'm sure we all, I remember when I was a kid, this is, uh, there was a uh, movie, it was on TV, but it was called Mercy, I've, I've come to find out. But there was this crazy lady who, like, kidnapped this author and broke his legs and, like, kept him hostage and was just totally insane. And I remember I was a kid thinking, I, this lady needs to die. And when my wife and I watch shows, we don't do it often because I'll start a show and she'll come in and be like, oh, I want to watch this with you. And that's like a death sentence. That means, okay, I'll never watch this show then because we just don't have time to watch shows together. So I start a show and never watch it. So I've gotten into the habit of watching like horrible shows. She'll be like, oh, what are you watching? I'm like, oh, I'm watching this sci-fi show that got canceled in the middle of its season because it was so bad. And she'll be like, okay. I'm like, yes, I can finish it. I can finish it. Um, But we're watching a show, one that we've actually been able to watch. It's called Grimm because it was filmed here in Portland. And all of the time, I'm just saying, I want this, per- even with the kids, don't, oh, that's bad. But some of them are like, ah, I just don't want them to be here anymore. Uh, but there's this one character at the beginning, man, they started out evil, and I'm like, oh, I can't wait till he dies. And then he kind of turns good. And I'm like, I kind of like this guy, actually. He's pretty awesome. He's good. Then he turns evil again. I'm like, oh, I can't wait till this guy dies. And it's like, the reality is, is I, I don't see far enough into the future. I don't have enough of the details. I'm a poor judge, and frankly, I think you are too, when it comes to being able to cast the sort of ultimate judgment that God casts. If my opinion can change in a matter of like three episodes of a show of whether or not someone should die or not, I probably am not the best judge of character, uh, the ultimate judge of character. 
Um, and and <laughs> we're always looking uh, at the sort of vengeance. We love vengeance, um, but we got to kind of leave it to God. And I want to show a video that, in my, in my opinion, sort of demonstrates the heart of this um, dictum given to us in this passage. Can you play that video? It's from the movie Les Miserables. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed. <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. In that video, you see Jean Valjean, the 
uh, criminal who didn't deserve that. He was not a very good person. But the priest overcame evil with good. And the story goes on to show that Jean Valjean changes his life and becomes really an upright, godly person who's set on doing good and bringing more good into the world. And he may may have never had that opportunity had he been repaid instead with evil rather than good. In one of the stories you may be familiar with, it is a true story about a a man named Graham Staines. And Graham and his two sons, Philip and Timothy, were mobbed by radical Hindus. They were trapped inside their vehicle. This was in India in 1999. And they were burned alive. And the three charred bodies were recovered clinging to each other. And uh, Graham Staines, he had spent 34 years serving the people of India. uh, And he was the director of the leprosy mission. And he left behind his wife. His wife's name was Gladys, and he also had a daughter who was 13 years old named Esther. And here's what's fantastic. This was the response that was printed in virtually every paper in India of the wife. She said this a few days after her husband and sons were killed. I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sons. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. And everyone thought that she would end up moving back to Australia, but she said God had called her to India and she would not leave. She said, My husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. And this is perhaps even more remarkable. This is what her, the teenage daughter said, 13 years old. She was asked how she felt about the murder of her dad, and she responded, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. We are called to let our anger die and to make way for love of enemy, and God will be the judge. So there are good reasons to leave judgment and ultimate vengeance to God, because He'll do it right. But I don't, I don't want to be like my uh, many seminary professors and tiptoe around this subject, so I'm going to take it head on, and it's difficult. It's a difficult one because... God's ultimate wrath is terrible. It is infinite and it is final, but it is ultimately escapable. And so I have four points. I listened to uh, John Piper, and he and I have a few theological disagreements, but we agree on almost everything important, and and I'm, I'm going to borrow some of the points that he used. But uh, I have four points. And the first is that 
God's wrath, His ultimate wrath, will be eternal, having no end. And the second point is that it will be terrible. It will be indescribable. The third point is it will be deserved. It will be totally just and right. And the last point, the fourth point, is that it will have been escapable through Christ. So let me, let me get that first point. The final wrath of God is eternal, having no end. It says in Daniel 2 or 12 2, God promises that the day is coming when many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And Jesus spoke of eternity of God's wrath in numerous ways, and let's consider three of them. In Mark 9, 43 through 48, he said, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So twice he calls uh, hell unquenchable. That's to say it will never go out. And the point is to say pretty soberly and terribly that if you go there, there will be no relief forever. And some might point out that, well, he's, it, there's hyperbole here, right? He's obviously exaggerating because we don't cut our hands off and our feet off or tear our eyes out. Most of us, at least, I hope, don't. So we have other passages, though. In Mark 3.29, Jesus says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And this is a pretty startling statement because it rules out the thoughts of universalism that say, you know, even, even if there is a hell, one day it's going to be emptied, and everybody will have suffered long enough, and they'll, and they'll be free. They'll get out. But that's not what Jesus said. He said that there is sin for which there will never be forgiveness. There are people who will never be saved. And third, in Matthew 25, he told the parable of the sheep and the goats to illustrate the way it will be when Jesus comes back. He says this in verse 41. Then the king will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And to, and to make it crystal clear that eternal means everlasting, he says again in verse 46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the punishment is eternal in the same way that everlasting life, our eternal life, is eternal. So both mean never-ending. They mean everlasting, and it's almost an incomprehensible thought. But Jesus didn't mean to speak this way in vain. Hell is real, but it's not just real. It's terrible, and we, like I said, we can't tiptoe around this. Hell is the ultimate manifestation of God's wrath. So my second point is that the final wrath of God will be terrible. It will be indescribable pain. And 
so many people look at the pictures of hell in the Bible because, frankly, it is described many different ways. It's uh, the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's outer darkness. It's fire and brimstone. It's a place where the worm will not die. And so they'll look and they'll say, well, aren't these just symbols? But this criticism has never made sense to me because what does that mean? Aren't these just symbols? Does that mean that those symbols just make it seem worse than it actually is? But who in the world uses symbols when those symbols just make it seem worse? Wouldn't you just use the literal language? When I was learning how to marry people, that is, perform the ceremony, I went to my father who has performed many, many, many marriages, and I said, what, you know, what are some pointers? What are some good things to say? And he, he got to the wedding ring. He told me a lot of good things, but he got to the wedding ring, and he said, this is what I do. He said, when, when exchanging the vows and they're giving their wedding rings, here's one of the things that you want to say. You know, many people look at the ring and they look at its circularity and they say, this represents the timeless nature of the commitment that you're entering. Others will look at the precious metals and jewels and say, this is a symbol of how valuable that marriage commitment is. But you know what I, I look at? I look at the fact that over time, the metal and the jewels will get scuffed and tarnished. I look at how they'll lose their original shine and luster. And then he would wait for the requisite hesitance and be like, wow, that's a horrible symbol of marriage. And then he would say, but... But with a little bit of work and a little bit of elbow grease, that shine and luster can always be restored. And it's the same with the marriage relationship. With a little bit of work and a little bit of elbow grease, the love and passion can always be restored. And this symbol that we use for marriage? Do we use the wedding ring because it's more valuable than marriage as a symbol? And, then, and then, so we can say, well, so marriage is not that valuable. I, I don't think so. Because I think we don't use symbols because we don't have the right word. In fact, yes, this is what I think. We use symbols because reality is worse than words. Or we use symbols because reality is more beautiful than words. If I were to say my, my wife is a diamond, I'm not saying, well, she's actually not worth as much as a diamond. It's, diamond is the most valuable stone that I can think of. It's the most valuable stone I can think of, so that's what I'm going to use to describe my wife. Not because she's not quite as valuable as a diamond, 
but because it's just a creative shortcoming for what words could never accurately express. So when we look at the symbols in the Bible, we have to see them as creative shortcomings for what words cannot accurately express. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. And so when we talk about fire, it's because it, it sort of touches the surface of how terrible it just might be. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 41, 42, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when the Bible speaks of hell and we say it's only a symbol, if it's a symbol at all, it means that reality is worse than fire, not better. The word fire is used not to make the easy sound terrible, but to make the exceedingly terrible sound something like what it really is. And the wrath of God, my third point, will be deserved. It will be totally just and right. And this third point, in, in many ways, is the hardest to, for us to grasp because the wrath of God will be totally deserved. I mean, we... We might think about somebody who gets a ticket and they go before a judge and the judge says, well, what are you here for? He says, well, I double parked. And the judge says, well, okay. That's going to be infinity years in prison. <laughs> Whoa, wait a minute. All I did was double park. Do I at least get parole? Absolutely not. No opportunity for parole. Infinity years, no parole. You're done. That's kind of what we think about. But we, we have to step back. We have to step back and think, do we have the right perspective? Can we look at the situation correctly? And uh, Hannah, who is here somewhere, one of my students, she'll know this because this is an example I use uh, for my kids when I'm, when I'm teaching. It's like um, imagining that you wake up and there was someone just cutting into your stomach. And you're like, whoa, hey, like, this is not okay. You're hurting me. I think you're killing me. It looks like it. What's going on? This is evil. This is wrong. And then as more information comes out, you realize, okay, I fainted. Oh, there was a tumor blocking one of my arteries and I was going to die. I needed some sort of emergency operation. And this plainclothes doctor just happened to be there with all the requisite tools necessary to perform this, this, this operation. So all of a sudden, with all the details in place, what we thought was wrong, evil, and horrible was in fact just right and good. And an example I use is when I go into my fridge, I'm a bad example for this because I never find things in the fridge that are actually there, but let's, um, let's imagine I open my fridge and I look everywhere, everywhere in my fridge, and I have my wife, because if my wife can't find it, it's not actually there. And there's no milk. It's a pretty safe assumption to say there is no milk in my fridge. Now, is that, is that what it's like when we look and we say, I, I can't imagine God has a good reason for sending someone to hell. I can't see it. 
Therefore, it's probably not there. It's kind of like me looking into a fridge and not finding milk. I can't see it, so it's probably not there. Is that what it's like? Or it's a farmer with 100 acres of land. He's sitting on his porch. His eyes are pretty bad. He's pretty old. And he looks out, and he says, yeah, no slugs. Not a single slug. So we're like, yeah, there's probably no slugs on his 100 acres of land. That's such a stupid assumption. There's no way he could possibly know that. Is that what it's like? God who has infinite knowledge, who knows everything, if we say, we, I can't see why God would do this, so it must not be there, that's like us looking out into 100 acres of land and saying, I don't see a slug, so it's probably not there. We couldn't possibly have the right perspective to make that sort of judgment. So let's, but let's look at how, how we deserve it. This is how the Bible describes us deserving it. You know, in, it was one sin alone in Genesis chapter 2, 17 that brought the entire world under the judgment of God. But you haven't committed one sin. You've committed tens of thousands, I think. I'm not counting. Could be more. I don't know. And then consider James 2.10. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So not only have you sinned tens of thousands of times, but each one had in it the breaking of the entire law. Uh, consider Galatians 3.10. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The wrath of God's curse falls on all of us for not obeying all that is commanded. One failure and the curse falls. And then consider that any offense to en or any dishonor to an infinitely honorable and infinitely worthy God is an infinite offense and an infinite dishonor. Therefore, infinite punishment is deserved. Small things can have huge impact. And I think about the story, uh, it was in 1996, of the Aero Peru Flight 603 that was, uh, it took off from the airport. But almost immediately, the pilots realized that there was some sort of catastrophic instrument failure. They couldn't tell where they were or how high they were going. And so they had to contact control and say that they had to make uh, an emergency return to the airport. But frankly, they didn't really know where they were. They didn't know their true altitude. And it wasn't until the plane, it, one of its wings hit the ocean that they knew what their altitude was. And the pilot tried to fix it, but he couldn't. It eventually went into the ocean. And 70 people went down with the plane. And when they retrieved the wreckage, it was pretty evident what went wrong. There was about 36 inches of duct tape that were over one of the sensors that they used to uh, test the airflow. 
And so a routine maintenance where they were testing the airflow caused all of the instruments to fail. And not, actually not all of them, most of them did, but since so many of them were failing, they couldn't trust any of them. And it went down. Something small caused huge and catastrophic error. So even the, the wrong things we do, the small things, are an infinite dishonor to an infinitely holy God. But my most important point here is my last point, my favorite point to talk about, now that I got all that out, is at the end of the age, when the full and final wrath of God is poured out, it will have been escapable. And that means it is escapable now. And it goes back to the example I gave in the first week where sin is, is really trying to tear us away from God's love. It's like the bees that were attacking the child. And the mother, who, though she's allergic to bees, ran full-fledged into it and says, I'm willing to take the stings to save you because I love you. And so God also rushed into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to save us. But, but, if we reject being saved, if we reject being saved and instead cling to godlessness, to wickedness, to cruelty, to meanness, if we reject it, we'll get not what God wants, we'll get not what grace has provided, but we'll get what we deserve. And we deserve hell. Hell, wrath, vengeance, it's a hard subject, but it's so crucial. It's important that we realize Christ really did save us from something terrible. And this escape is now. And we must be faithful witnesses to this escape in this present day. And I want to sh- end with something that I have a hard time sharing without crying because it's not a story I share very frequently. There was a person named Matt Sampson that I worked with at Wilsonville Family Fund Center. And he was just a nice guy, but he was totally lost. He didn't have his life together. He made a lot of mistakes. I remember there were times where he came to work, or he slept in the parking lot of work, hungover. He ended up getting tased by cops that came. His life was messed up. It was in shambles. And I remember he came up to me one day, and this was, this was only a few days after he was literally tased in the parking lot of work. And he said, Matt, I don't know what's going on with my life. I don't know what's going on. What do you think I should do? What do you think I need? And you you know what I said to him? I said, I don't know, man. I don't know, man. 
I do know. I do know. And maybe two years later, I find out that he dies of a drug overdose. And the only thing I can think of is that I looked at him and had every opportunity to share Christ in his life. And I said, I don't know, man. Escape is now. And we need to be faithful witnesses to that and not miss opportunities to share God in people's lives. And I pray that you would learn from my own shame in that situation because it is something that weighs heavy on my heart to miss an opportunity to share Christ's love to somebody who needed it. I pray that we would be faithful witnesses to this escape now that Christ has provided because the alternative is terrible. Will you pray with me? God, we just thank you so much for how awesome you are. That you would be willing to save us even though we don't deserve it. That you have provided an escape through Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be faithful witnesses to this message, God. Not just because hell is terrible, but because you are loving and awesome. I pray that you would be with us this week. I pray that you would be with us this day and that you would be with us forever. And we love you in your precious name. Amen.